Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On this week's episode of Digital Village, the election is under a month away, and today we're focused on voting and civic engagement. In the later part of the show, I'm joined by Jenny Gottstein, a game designer who's helping making voting an experience we can enjoy with her work at Ballot.Party. But first... We're speaking with Brad Friedman from bradblog.com and KPFK's Bradcast, which airs every Monday at 3 p.m. Hi, Brad. Hey, Rick. Let's go to the Georgia primary before we go on to the November 3rd election. What happened in Georgia? Well, in Georgia, in their primaries earlier this year, it was not unlike our primaries here in Los Angeles County. It was a huge failure of brand new multi-million dollar touchscreen voting systems that are being used for the first time in this year's elections. And they failed in a way that many of us had warned before the election that they were likely to fail. We had recommended hand-marked paper ballots as a much cheaper, more reliable, and certainly more verifiable for the election. Much of the failure in both Georgia and Los Angeles had to do with electronic poll books, which failed, which means those systems rely on the internet and people cannot vote if those systems don't work. And lo and behold, just as cybersecurity experts had warned, they failed. Now, there are also large counties in Ohio, North Carolina, and Texas. Do they use the BMD uh, machines? Yeah, they do. Sadly, it's a trend. We've got about 20% of the country now voting on these ballot marking devices, which are touchscreen computers that print out a computer marked ballot with your selection supposedly on that piece of paper. Problem is, the recent studies have shown that 93% of voters do not notice when the ballot marking device has actually changed even one of their votes. And after an election, it's impossible to know if any vote cast on one of those ballot marking devices actually reflects the intent of the voter. It is a terrible option in virtually every regard. The only reason anyone would ever want to use one of those systems is if they, for whatever reason, cannot use a hand-marked paper ballot. For example, if they're disabled or if they have uh, language issues and so forth. To have one of those machines in a polling place for folks who wish to use them in that case, that's fine. But what we're seeing here in Los Angeles, what we're seeing in Georgia, what we're seeing in Philadelphia, in the key swing battleground state of Pennsylvania, is that they are forcing all voters at the polls to use these unverifiable uh, voting systems. Speaking of Pennsylvania, from what I hear, there are Democratic operatives who are siding with the Republicans. Would you parse that out for us? Yeah, they're actually Democratic officials. In this case, it's uh, Democratic Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, Kathy Buchvar. She is being sued by the NAACP because of many of the problems that I mentioned with these uh, voting systems and others that I didn't have time to get into. So she's being sued by the NAACP, who would like to use hand-marked paper ballots instead. And the Trump campaign has intervened in that case to take the side of the Democratic Secretary of State. Now, 
What should raise your eyebrow on this is that the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee and the state Republican Party have been suing Pennsylvania and Democrats in both state and federal court now for weeks in order to stop everything, to stop the use of mail-in ballots, to prevent the state from using secure drop boxes so people can drop their ballot off safely. They have been suing in every regard to stop pretty much everything, but for some reason, They're joining the Democratic Secretary of State here to say, no, we would like for Philadelphia, the most Democratic-leaning county in the state, to use these 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems. Now, why would they do that, Rick? Let me guess, money. (laughs) I think in the case of uh, a lot of the Democratic officials who want to use these machines, yes, it was money. In fact, the uh, largest voting machine company in the world ESNS, who sold them the tens of millions of dollars worth of these machines, was secretly lobbying elections officials who were recently forced to pay back something like $3 million that they were receiving from the company. So that's one good reason that election officials, whether they're Democratic or not, might want to use those machines. But why would the Republicans be so against verifiable hand-marked paper ballots that you get when you vote absolutely? but all in favor of completely unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in a key battleground state that Donald Trump supposedly won by about 44,000 votes back in 2016. I would say because they like the fact that these machines have, shall we call them irregularities? Yeah, they are easier to manipulate without anybody ever knowing. They're also great when they go down and you want to prevent a whole bunch of people from voting at all in the most Democratic stronghold in the state. I think uh, Democrats should be very concerned that Donald Trump is all in on these touchscreen systems that sadly Democrats seem to be just fine with. And they are not speaking up about the serious concerns about these systems, even though they keep failing in election after election from Pennsylvania to Georgia to North Carolina to out here in in California. Brad Friedman, I'm going to ask a question that Emily Levy, founder of Scrutineers, it's a networking mm-hmm. group for the election integrity movement, put it, shouldn't citizens be asking election officials in universal BMD states this question, when you are called upon to prove that these election results are correct, how do you think you're going to be able to do that? <laughs> well, that's the problem, isn't it? They will not be able to prove those election results are accurate. And by the way, Emily Levy is a longtime colleague of mine, scrutineers.org. I would recommend people check out and join. But the fact of the matter is, yeah, after the election, if let's say, and I know this is completely hypothetical, but let's say Donald Trump wished to challenge the results after an election. What better way to do it than to go into a state like Pennsylvania? and look at Philadelphia and demand that the election officials there prove that any vote cast on one of these systems actually represents the intent of the voter. The problem is 
It can't be done. And if Donald Trump decided to announce that these votes should be thrown out because they can't be verified, while I would not agree they should be thrown out, I would have to agree with him that they are unverifiable. That's one of the reasons I'm so furious about the use of these machines. And it's not so hypothetical seeing that what Trump has been saying lately, not counting some uh, paper Mm -hmm. ballots. Well, the absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, vote-by-mail ballots, whatever you want to call them, they are all the same, despite Donald Trump's intent to confuse the American public about it. At least absentee ballots are, in fact, hand-marked paper ballots. They're not just verifiable, they're actually verified. That's by definition. When you fill out that paper ballot, you are verifying that these are who you are voting for. In states like Georgia and in counties in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas, North Carolina, and yes, here in California, in Los Angeles County, where you were otherwise forced to vote on one of these unverifiable BMD systems at the polling place, then it's always a better option to use a vote-by-mail ballot. I'm not a fan of vote-by-mail. That said, during a pandemic, I'm a much bigger fan of vote-by-mail, but even then, if possible, do everything that you can do to drop that vote-by-mail ballot off in person on Election Day at a polling place, during early voting at the polling place, in one of the drop boxes, etc. Do anything you can to get it there yourself. Don't rely on the U.S. Postal Service this year, not while Donald Trump is also gaming the USPS. It is amazing. We've been talking about this for quite a while, but especially during this COVID era, you have been Mm -hmm. saying that's what we should do. I have actually heard on other programs not Fox, but other programs that by people who are waking up, that is what citizens should do. They should use drop boxes or drop them off at your polling place. So uh, ahead of the curve again, Brad Friedman. Well, it is absolutely imperative. We are in a national emergency right now, like this nation has never seen, at least not since the Civil War. This is serious at this point. Democracy itself is on the line. And anyone who doesn't realize they better make sure they're registered, make sure they're registered at the address that they think they are registered, where they actually live. You can do that online in most states, certainly here in California. And here in California, by the way, you can uh, go online to the Secretary of State's website or the L.A. County website, and you can sign up to track your ballot. So you'll actually get a notice by phone, by text, by email that your ballot has arrived, that your ballot has been counted, etc. You won't get to find out how it has been counted, if it has been accurately, but at least you will know that it got there. This is all hands on deck. This is an emergency. Right now, nothing is more important to the survival of this nation than casting your vote. It's going to be a hell of a lot harder for the Republicans to make the argument in the U.S. House that we ought to give the election to Donald Trump if 10 million, if 20 million more people voted for Joe Biden than Donald Trump. So that comes into play even here in California, where some voters may think it's preordained that Joe Biden is going to win. If you do care about democracy, your vote here in California does make a difference. If you look up California Secretary of State, you should be able to find it easy. And there you can sign up for notices directly from the state when your ballot is counted. Great. On that very positive note, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com and KPFK's own Bradcast heard every Monday at 3 p.m.
Thanks a lot, Brad. Peace be with us. Thank you, Rick. We're all in this fight together, my friend. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on Fearless Radio here on 90.7 FM KPFK. Digital Village has been bringing you the digital news stories and in-depth interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in technology. Including stories like you just heard to help us guarantee fair voting, keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online. KPFK's voice of honesty, frank views, and insights will help guide you through more than just the fight for the presidency, but also what's on the ballot here in Los Angeles and why you need to care. Don't wait for the end of the fun drive. Get your donation in now and stay tuned knowing that you did your part. Please go to kpfk.org forward slash donate. Thanks again. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by Jenny Gottstein, a game designer who's designed large games for disaster preparedness and voting, and so much more. We start with Jenny's journey that brought her to designing games for civic engagement. I was always a really serious kid. I I grew up in a family of activists. I was concerned with what was fair, and, and my earliest memories were writing anti war letters to Clinton all throughout my childhood, I was a one woman army for doing things that I thought needed to be done. I got to the end of high school and I realized what being a one woman army is exhausting. How do people do it together? And that's why in school I studied social movements and understanding how people organize, how folks have come together to create massive change. And It brought me my junior year to study abroad in Chile in 2006. It's a much longer story, but by accident, I found myself in the middle of a student revolution. These were um, high school and college students that were organizing to change the constitution. Pinochet, the dictator that had been ousted decades earlier, had changed the constitution to solidify inequality, especially in education. And these kids were like, we're not into it. We're changing it. So they shut down their schools democratically, but by force, and they took to the streets. It looked not unlike a lot of the BLM organizing, but this was 2006, and there wasn't anything like that happening in the U.S. with regards to education. What these kids were were organizing for were not having to pay for their equivalent of the SATs or having to bus into the center of cities because that's where the better schools were near all of the affluent neighborhoods. And they saw the connection between education and inequality and they wanted to change it. And they were risking life and limb to do it. And I remember being in the middle of this thinking, what's different about this? How come we don't see this in the United States right now? One of the things that I noticed was in the middle of all of this incredibly serious organizing and protest, they were having fun. They were doing costumed sit-ins in the Capitol. Meanwhile, in these shutdown schools, they're hosting ska concerts and soccer tournaments. Oh, in this case, the social and the political are not two separate spheres. Whereas when I was in college, it was, well, either you're involved or you're having a good time. I caught this glimpse of what it could look like when you combined the social and the political and... I realized, oh, fun and getting serious things done. These are not mutually exclusive concepts. In fact, when you're having a good time, you might get more done 
because you may be sustaining your efforts or you may be attracting more people to your cause. You can't disassociate these political movements from the social and and cultural moments of their time and never underestimate the power of when awesome people come together and share information and, and resources. I left school thinking, how does one design such fun? Like, this is a serious child and you'd be like, fun? How do you make fun? I took a job in New York working in nightlife and studying parties. I threw myself into this space because I was so fascinated with the art of gathering and the art of creating spaces where people could exchange power and create connection in the context of joy. You pivoted from throwing parties in New York City to designing games in San Francisco. Can you talk about that transition? I started working for a company that designed interactive adventure games. This was pre-Pokemon Go, but it was the same concept of using technology to create a layer of play on top of the real world. I learned the power of play to change behaviors and perceptions and bring people together. I realized there's not a big difference between parties and games In terms of design, you're still trying to create spaces for psychological safety. People can step into the best version of themselves. I'm really excited about the kinds of games that bring out the best in us. Right, like zombie apocalypse games. So yeah, it was there that I started designing zombie apocalypse disaster preparedness games. I had this idea with a friend of mine. What if we created a game where in the course of it, you're learning things that help you survive any man-made or natural disaster, but you're learning it in the context of a zombie apocalypse game. You're getting chased by zombies and it's fun and ridiculous. We put the first one together in San Francisco. It was a combination of helpful things. People in the course of the game learned what radio stations they should tune into when something's happening or what they need to put in their go bag or how to create a family communication plan. But then they also learned ridiculous things like there was a zombie brain bashing relay with pinatas and I, I enlisted my dad who sat in a alley way and people found him and learned how to cut a fish. And, and then it culminated in a thriller flash mob in the park. And it was so fun and so ridiculous. As a result, the city of San Francisco reached out to us and they were like, hey, this is compelling. We're trying to get people prepared. Can we build off of this momentum? And we ended up doing a couple of games with the city, focusing on earthquake preparedness. And over the next year, we started doing those games all around the state. Uh, I did games around wildfire preparedness, tsunami preparedness in urban areas and rural areas. So the zombie games were really an opportunity to flip the feelings associated with getting prepared. It was all about running around with friends, having a good time. In the process, you're getting some things done that you've wanted to get done, but you haven't really made the time or space to for any number of reasons. And in learning that, it launched this inquiry for me, where else can we apply that? And I ended up sharing those insights with the CDC, with the Office of Civic and Social Innovation at the White House. Again, this is 2014. And... 
Then a few years later, I transitioned from the Go Game, the company I was working with at the time, who, by the way, still do disaster preparedness games. And I now work for a company called IDEO, which is a design and innovation company. We get hired as consultants to help companies, governments, organizations figure out solutions. And I work specifically in the Play Lab, which means I have the glorious task of figuring out how play can provide creative solutions in healthcare, transportation, education, etc. That brings us to now. And that brings us to the, the continued work I'm doing around redesigning people's associations with important topics through play. So could you talk about now the transition from disaster preparedness games to games around and designed for civic engagement? I've been obsessed with redesigning our relationship to civic engagement. For the most part, with, with some exceptions, we tend to have pretty negative emotions associated with getting involved, either overwhelm, confusion, or frustration, or even with the best of intentions, we feel a sense of obligation or guilt. And as a game designer, I know those feelings are strong motivators or fear, strong motivator, but it's not a sustainable motivator. In fact, a stronger and more sustainable motivator are feelings of joy, desire, aspiration, and connection. I've been running a series of parties over the past six years to help to cultivate a different set of emotions related to voting, related to staying involved in your community and issues that you care about, organizing, etc. This year, for this election season, some friends and I have been organizing a party series called Vote With Us. It's online where folks can get together and create their voting plan because studies show that having a strong voting plan exponentially increases the likelihood that you will cast a successful vote. So coming together, creating our voting plans together, and then either having some element of inspiration like having someone share a project that they're working on or an organization that's doing really rad work to reinforce a sense of awe for the capacity of the human spirit or doing some wellness practice or embodied movement, doing some yoga or dance or something that makes you feel physically good in association with voting. We are running a series that we're inviting folks to, but also we're developing a DIY kit version. So if you want to throw a, a version for your family and friends, getting folks together, doing a voting plan, plus whatever you love to do, be it vote plus ice cream or vote plus karaoke, you can do it too. So for more information, you can go to www.ballot.party. This party series was inspired by the fact that in March of this year, 2020, for the California primary election, California tossed over 100,000 ballots, which when I first read that, I thought was a typo. It's like, what? No way. But it's true. Over 100,000 ballots because they arrived too late or there were common user mistakes because most people haven't voted by mail before, or they're not used to these new systems and they're missing the deadlines. So one of the reasons why we wanted to organize these parties is because A, having a plan to vote makes sure that you, you actually do it. And B, if you vote early, if anything goes wrong, you have time to fix it before it's too late. That was Jenny Gottstein. You can create your own 
party at ballot.party. Also, Jenny has been designing with her former colleagues at the Go game, Game Save America, which I played a demo of a few weeks ago, and it was so much fun. You're playing, learning, all of this done virtually, you're even drawing, there's just so much, and you're on teams. You can check it out at gamesaveamerica.com. This election year is a critical one. Be prepared. Vote early if you can. And it's not just about the presidential election. There's a lot of ballot measures in California as well and some critical races here in Los Angeles. So make a plan. You can hear all our episodes by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital VU Radio or at digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. And we'll see you online. online.